Okay, while you're waiting for me, why don't you guys open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What I want to share with you guys this morning, uh, if there's anything I love teaching on, other than the Word of God itself, it would be this specific presentation on the historical reliability of the Bible, and specifically this morning, uh, looking at the New Testament. If you missed Thursday, we looked at the Old Testament, so if you were here, you kind of know what you're, you're getting yourself into. But this presentation isn't new. Uh, this is actually something I compiled over 15 years ago when I was an associate pastor here at this church on my old Dell 600 Inspiron M running Windows XP and spending three hours trying to figure out how to get it to present on the screen. A lot easier today than it was back then. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's going to be like a small Bible college class this morning. Let's pray, and then we're going to pick up in verse 12. Lord, we do thank you for this morning and for your wonderful grace, and thank you for that time of worship and communion. Lord, our ability to be near to you by your grace, that your grace abounds over our sin. I do ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins this morning so that we can approach your word with a clean conscience. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would apply the word of God this morning in ways that I don't have the ability to. Pray for good interpretation. Pray, Lord, for the data and the information of this presentation, that it would impact us and give us the courage and encouragement that we need to uh, trust you. You haven't asked us, Lord, to have a blind faith like every other religion out there. You've built your word and you've built the events of your word on real established facts. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd bless this time, allow us to fall in love with it and to retain it, and to use it to bring many others to know you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone says... Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do, some of, uh, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, or another word for there is pointless, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Read verse 14 through 16 with me one more time. I don't want to pull it up on the screen here. If Christ is not risen, and what Paul means by that is historically, actually, physically risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And we are found false witnesses of God because we testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. And if Christ is not risen Historically, actually, physically, factually, your faith is pointless. Can you guys imagine being the Apostle Paul? He's having to write this letter to the Corinthian church, and he's got a a slew of things he has to correct. He's got division in the church. Some are going after Apollos, other Peter, other Paul, and he's trying to unify it. There's sexual immorality in the church. Someone has their father's mother, and then there's this crazy amount of disorder in the services with the gifts being practiced in various ways and disorderly ways. But this one has just got to put the nail in the coffin. He's like, hey, listen, we can correct all of these other things, but some of you say that Jesus didn't actually rise again from the dead. Why must the New Testament be historically reliable? This is really what Paul the Apostle is implying when he is presenting this argument about the resurrection of Jesus. Our faith has to be rooted in historical events in order for it to be objective. It has to be. If it's not built on real factual events, then the stuff that we study in the Word of God has no point. I want to do an exercise with you this morning of what's historical and what's not. Those of you who are here on Thursday will remember this, but kind of give you an idea of why this is so important and why the Word of God has to be historical. Just looking for some interaction here. George Washington as the first president of the United States. Historical or not historical? Historical. 
Reliably historical or not reliably historical? Okay. How about Peter Pan and uh, the Neverlands? I don't want to break anyone's heart this morning, but historical or not historical? Why? His real name was Michael Jackson. Did I just hear that? I have not heard that before. Wow. Some real conspiracy theories in this church, Pastor Ben. <laughs> about the Holocaust? Historical. What about the Battle of Aslan and the Witch? Not historical. About the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers? Historical. And though I know there's some big fans in here, historical or not historical? Not historical. Okay. What do all of these have in common? They're fiction. How do we know they're fiction? Someone made them up. There's no real eyewitnesses who've seen Peter Pan, at least not anyone in their right mind. Okay? No one's walked through a wardrobe and seen Aslan the lion. Certainly no one's discovered a lightsaber in the middle of nowhere and has wielded it. But what do these have in common? Historical. There is a slew of things, four things specifically, which help us establish in knowing that something in the past is historical. There's real eyewitnesses who have witnessed the events of them. There's real locations. They take place in real places, real historic landmarks. There's corroborating data, archaeology, outside sources. And there's documentation in transcripts. So historical reliability is knowing for a fact that something happened in history that we can rely on. We can rely on the fact that George Washington was the first president of the United States, but we could never rely on the fact that Peter Pan and the Neverlands exist because we know intuitively what is historical and what is not because we know the data that's required to make something historical. So our big question this morning is, is the New Testament historically reliable? Is the New Testament historically reliable? And how do we know? Now, in order to answer this question, there's three things we need to do. And you could call this our three-point outline for this morning. We're going to spend the majority of our time on point number three, but to be honest with what we're approaching here, we have to look at these first two as well. Number one, questions about the New Testament that need answered. Number two, why is it important for us as Christians to defend the historical reliability of the New Testament? And then third, looking at the actual test of historical reliability. Let's start with our first point, questions to answer concerning the historical reliability of the New Testament. And here are some legitimate questions that people have about our Bibles, specifically about the New Testament, and even more specifically about the Gospels and about Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe you've heard some of these. Do we really have what the original authors wrote 2,000 years ago? Is our copy of the New Testament corrupted? Can it be trusted as a historical account of events? Is there adequate evidence for the claims of the New Testament that Jesus is the Christ, that he did miraculous signs and wonders? Were there reliable witnesses to the events of the New Testament? Was Jesus of Nazareth a real person, or did they just make him up out of thin air? Did Jesus really perform the signs and wonders of the first century? Was he really crucified? Here's the one that Paul addresses. Did Jesus really resurrect from the dead? Were there any secular witnesses to the events of the New Testament? Have there been any historical or scientific errors? Does archaeology contribute or challenge any of these things? How many of you guys have ever had any one of these questions come your way? One way, shape, or form? Not very many of you? That's, okay, I was going to say. A few of us? Or you're just shy? Yeah, these are real questions that people have. And as Pastor Ben had said earlier, these things have been debunked. These questions have been answered for hundreds of years. But the information is slowly coming to the surface. For some reason, it's so hard. We're going to answer all of these questions either directly or indirectly this morning. But for now, let's come to the second thing that we have to understand. Why do we need to defend the New Testament in this regard? And there's two reasons Reason number one, which Paul has given us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not alive, if he has not historically risen from the dead, if our New Testament is not historically reliable, then our faith crumbles. That would mean that the word of God is not inerrant. The New Testament's in error, then so is God since it's his word. It would mean that the Bible does not have veracity because it can't be trusted in earthly matters. And how can we trust it in spiritual matters? Jesus even poses this question in John chapter 3, verse 12. What about Jesus? He couldn't be the Christ 
if he did not historically live or exist or rise again. He would be a liar. The Bible would have no superiority. It would be no better than books like the Quran or the Book of Mormon, which have zero historical reliability to them. They're just made-up spiritual books. There'd be no verifiability, no guarantee that the records we have could be verified. And certainly, there'd be no spirituality. The New Testament could not be a spiritual book if it was not historically and objectively established in the events that it records. Now, the second reason why we have to defend the New Testament is also because the Bible commands us to defend our hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 5 says that we need to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I'm often reminded when it says the, the high things that exalts itself against God, I'm reminded of the high places that were all across the nation of Israel during the times of the kings. And the kings were, were fearful of tearing down the high places. Only very few kings actually took down the pagan areas where they were worshiping other gods. It's our job as well as Christians to tear down the high places. We also ought to correct those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Or convict those who contradict is the command given to Pastor Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. We also ought to confirm the gospel. We are in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, Paul says. That word confirmation in Greek actually means established fact. The gospel is an established fact. Jude, verse 3, he writes his letter and he says, I've found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, perhaps one of the most popular verses, he commands us to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Do you guys see it? Our faith has to be, number one, rooted in historical events in order to be objective. And number two, it has to be defendable from arguments and contradictions that often shipwreck faith. These are questions that people who either they fall away from the Lord because they don't understand it, they don't realize the information that's available, or people don't come to the Lord because they think that the New Testament is not historically reliable. Okay, so we've asked fair questions about the New Testament that need answered, and we've learned why it's important to have a defense ready. So let's put the New Testament to the test of historical reliability. And this is where, if you're taking notes, sharpen now, because we're going to be flying through this so we have enough time to get through all of it. The historical reliability of any ancient document is proven by three substantial tests. And these are not tests that I have made up, these are tests that historians and scholars who look at documents of antiquity use to establish whether or not a document is telling the truth. These three tests are the bibliographical test. It's kind of a mouthful. This test looks at the documents and the manuscripts to determine its authenticity. The second test is the internal test. This test looks inside the documents and manuscripts to determine its authenticity. It wants to see if it's telling the truth. And then the external test, this test looks outside the documents and manuscripts to determine its authenticity. Things like archaeology, other witnesses, other people who have spoken of the same things that are being recorded in that document. Now, an ancient document has to pass all three of these tests without fail to be considered historically reliable. It can't just pass one. It can't even just pass two. It has to pass all three or it's considered a document that is in error. It can't be trusted whatsoever. So let's do this with the New Testament by starting with the bibliographical test. Now, before we look at how the New Testament qualifies in this test, I want to take a tip from good old Bruce here, F.F. Bruce, if you've heard of him. He says, perhaps we can appreciate how wealthy the New Testament is in manuscript attestation if we compare the textual material for other ancient manuscripts. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the next competing documents of antiquity to see how they fare in the area of the bibliographical test, looking at the manuscript data. Let's start with a man named Aristotle. I'm sure you've heard of him. 
famous Greek philosopher. He was the teacher of Alexander the Great. His many volumes about his life. His writings have been published. He's an authority in philosophy. There's many schools that bear his name. He lived around 384 BC. The Encyclopedia Britannica says that most of Aristotle's surviving works are fertile of ideas and full of energy. There was no such thing as an intellectual discipline until Aristotle invented the notion. If you're a Wikipedia fan, they say all aspects of Aristotle's philosophy continue to be the object of academic study today. Now here's what's surprising about Aristotle is that we only have five manuscripts in existence of his works today. Only five. Even more surprising, the earliest copy that we possess of his writings is 1,100 years removed from his original work, meaning that the time that he first penned his works to the earliest copy we have is 1,100 years removed. Over a millennium, that's plenty of time for someone to go in there and embellish the words of Aristotle. We don't actually know for sure that the works of Aristotle are really the works of Aristotle. We have nothing to compare them to before 1,100 years of the writings. Pretty interesting that Aristotle's been venerated to such a lofty position, but we don't even have very many manuscripts or time gaps that are worthy of making note of. Let's move to another man named Tacitus. Tacitus lived around 100 AD, just a century or a generation after Jesus was crucified. We derive much of the early history of Rome from him, especially what's known as the Annals of Imperial Rome. The encyclopedia says that Tacitus ranks beyond dispute in the highest place among men of all letters of all ages. His work is the most reliable source for the history of his era. Tacitus is Rome's greatest historian. It's a pretty incredible commendation given there. But we only have 20 manuscripts of his work, just 20. And just like Aristotle, his works that we have today are still 900 to 1,000 years removed from the original writing. Here's just a quick update of what we've seen so far. If we compare these works of antiquity that are being praised by historians and scholars around the world. Here's the average manuscript count, and here's the major time gaps that we're seeing. Probably the most plentiful amount of manuscripts that we have today is the story Iliad, written by Homer. I'm sure you've heard of it or read it in college or even high school. Written by Homer, he also wrote the Odyssey. He lived around 800 BC. We have 643 manuscripts of his work. That's pretty incredible. Quite a bit bigger than the previous. But of course, as we all know, his works are fictional. They're not historically reliable. Scholars believe, oh, I must have missed a slide there. Maybe not, I don't have it in here. Well, let me just read you what the encyclopedia says. Scholars believe that the Iliad and the Odyssey, although based on traditional materials, were independent, original, and largely fictional. Okay, so we've only sampled three of these works here. I want to give you a graph. I'm going to pass this up real quick here. Oh, there it is. I have my slides out of order. Here are the next competing works to the New Testament on gaps from original to the earliest copy we possess, copies of manuscripts that we possess of each of these works. And you're going to see the average there is between, you know, 10 to 20 for most of them if you're doing really good, a couple hundred over there on the very right. The time gaps are all within average of about a millennium from the original to the earliest copy that we possess. If we throw this into a chart, this is kind of what we're looking at on manuscript data. If we throw the time gaps into the chart, here's the averages that we're seeing across the board. So our question is, how does the New Testament compare in manuscript evidence to the next competing documents of antiquity? And maybe this question could be answered with more emphasis if we get right to the point. There's over 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. 25,000, not 2,500, not 2,000, not 10,000, not even 20,000, but 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. When I first did this presentation, that number was 23,000. So on average, we're finding almost 1,000 new manuscripts every single year on the New Testament that are being dug up in the area of Israel and the surrounding areas. This is not a typo pretty huge result. That's 24,000 more manuscripts than the next competing document of antiquity. 
If you're a nerd like me, here's the breakdown, okay? 6,000 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate, 4,000 Slavic, and it goes on from there. If we throw the New Testament into our little radial chart here, here's what our average was, but if we throw this in, here's the New Testament. <laughs> you barely get a sliver for the next competing documents. You can't even barely see them in there, can you? Well, what about the question of time gaps? Actually, let me don't get ahead of myself. Um, going back to F.F. F. Bruce, he was right, right? Perhaps we can't appreciate how wealthy the New Testament is in manuscript attestation if we compare the textual material for other ancient manuscripts. Amen to that. Daniel Wallace, a professor of New Testament, he says, in the case of the New Testament, as time goes on, we are getting closer and closer to the exact wording of the original text because of the vast amounts of manuscripts, many of which are quite early, which scholars continue to uncover. Of the 138,000 words of the original text, only one or two might have no manuscript support. So this manuscript support is completely unheard of outside of the New Testament, nor is there any other piece of ancient literature out there that contains the exactness that the New Testament holds. Now here's the time gap as well, from the earliest manuscripts we possess to the original writing. The New Testament doesn't just boast an incredible amount of manuscripts, but Perhaps most re remarkably, the New Testament boasts the smallest time gap, some manuscripts only within a 50 years from the original writing. This is one generation, church. Some of these copies that we have are written by people who are still around when the apostles were alive, or the disciples of the apostles were still alive. Not enough time for these works to be corrupted, and we can compare them with the later works. So here's the time gap of ancient documents, we throw the New Testament in there. You can see it's just a sliver of the time gap, not very much time for corruption to happen between our manuscript data. So if critics want to cut out Jesus in the history books, which some have tried, we don't see that very much anymore as this information has come to the surface, they have to destroy every other historical figure that ever existed because there is more about the person of Jesus Christ in history than any other person of antiquity. Jesus did exist, he did get crucified, and he was risen from the grave. Daniel Wallace goes on to say, the manuscript copies are far, far more plentiful and earlier than any other Greek or Latin text. In terms of manuscript data, any skepticism about the Jesus of the Gospels should be multiplied many times over for any other historical figure. Or to put this positively, we have more and earlier manuscript evidence about the person of Jesus Christ than we do anyone in the ancient world. Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, anyone. <laughs> this is phenomenal data, isn't it? If you're hearing this for the first time, you ought to be blown away by how the Lord has preserved our word, the word of God, bibliographically speaking. Now, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that everything I just shared with you didn't actually exist. I want you to imagine we had no manuscript evidence for the New Testament, at least not anything worth noting of. Despite no manuscript evidence, we still have 36,000 early exact quotations from the New Testament between the first and third century AD. And from their quotes, we could completely reconstruct the entire New Testament with the exception of only 11 verses. Think about that. So the early church fathers who lived between the first and third century, some of these who knew the apostles or knew the disciples of the apostles, they quoted the New Testament manuscripts so many times that you could get the New Testament from their quotations alone. Norman Geisler says that the quotations are so numerous and widespread that if no manuscripts of the New Testament were extant, the New Testament could be reproduced from the writings of the early fathers alone. J. Harold Greenlee says these quotations are so extensive that the New Testament could be virtually reconstructed from them without the use of New Testament manuscripts. And we actually have an exact chart of where all of these quotations come from. From Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, who was the disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp being the disciple of John the Apostle, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian, Politus, Eusebius, 
36,289 quotes directly from the New Testament to compare this to. So consider this about the bibliographical test. 25,000 plus manuscripts. 36,000 plus quotations directly from the New Testament without those manuscripts. And the smallest time gaps in history on manuscript data. The New Testament documents are without exception the most bibliographically proven documents in the world. This ranks the top of historicity. Any critic would be a fool to question the New Testament in terms of manuscript data. Isn't this what you would expect if this is in fact the word of God, that God would leave a testimony of manuscripts for us to look back on, even 2,000 years later? I'd say that the New Testament passes that first test with flying colors. In fact, it leads that test, doesn't it? Let's come to our second test this morning, which is known as the internal test. Remember, the bibliographical test looked at the documents themselves, the data, the manuscripts. The internal test now draws its attention to looking into the documents to determine its authenticity. In other words, it allows the documents to testify for itself as to whether or not it's telling the truth. Think of it as if the New Testament is speaking in court. It has the right to speak for itself, to tell us and to ensure us that what it has to say is in fact true. Now, there's hundreds of internal tests that scholars and historians can run a document through. We, of course, don't have time for those this morning, but we're going to focus on five different parts of this test. We're going to look at the evidence of eyewitnesses. Reliable history always leaves plenty of eyewitnesses. We're going to look at what's known as preservational features. These are elements in place that preserve history. We're going to look at counterproductive features. These are elements in documents that prove the author is not embellishing what they're saying, and that they're actually telling the truth of what has happened. Something unique to the Word of God is the prophetic fulfillment of Scriptures, right? That the New Testament has reliably foretold and fulfilled future events that were spoken of in the Old Testament. And then we're also going to look at non-mythical features. These are elements that show that no myths were being rewritten or referenced in the writing of the document. Let's take a look at this first internal test, the evidence of eyewitnesses. This first test seeks to find those eyewitnesses within the document who claim to have seen what has actually happened. If no one claims to be an eyewitness, it's much harder to believe that what was being written really happened. I think of Joseph Smith, who talked about all of this stuff about Jesus visiting the Americas and the Jews coming over on sea. Who's really the eyewitness to these events besides him being locked up behind a curtain looking at golden tablets that no one has ever seen? Not very convincing, is it? It's not the case of the Bible, certainly not the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's ample amounts of individuals who testify of seeing the things that have been written about. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke is writing Theophilus. He says, those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word of God, and they delivered them to us. Luke is claiming that he's not only an eyewitness of the apostles, but he knows many of the eyewitnesses who saw Christ. Peter the apostle says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we did not follow cunningly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John the Apostle, in John chapter 19, verse 35, speaking of himself, he says, he who has seen has testified. I've seen these things, and because I've seen them, my testimony is true. First John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and seen and looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We've touched the piercings in his hands and the piercing in his side. We ate fish with the man after he rose again from the dead. That eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. He says, I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And here's where he goes into eyewitness testimony that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. During the time that Paul is writing this, he says, you can go knock on the doors of the individuals who have seen the physically risen Christ, although some have fallen asleep. After this, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, 
he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. And Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Then he goes on to say, blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John 21, after these things, Jesus showed himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. The list goes on and on and on of people of apostles and authors writing that they were eyewitnesses of the things of which they have seen. In fact, of just the resurrection of Jesus alone, from the scriptures, there are over 520 witnesses being boasted of who have seen the risen Christ. There's certainly more than that. It's indisputable that the writers of the New Testament were not in any way trying to write something novel, but were emphatically declaring the things they had witnessed themselves. That's why they were so passionate about it. That's why they went and died the gruesome deaths and the martyrdoms that they died because they saw what happened. They wouldn't die for what they knew was a lie. Now, another important internal test is evaluating the traditions of the time, the place and the culture in which the events of the New Testament took place. And in the case of the New Testament, there's something called oral tradition, which was the most common and reliable component to preserve real life accounts. And we're going to posit several factors that support this, that the gospel tradition was carefully preserved, not just in writing, but also in speaking. And this was a, an argument developed by a man named Craig Blomberg. He says, number one, that Jesus was perceived by his followers as one who spoke God's word in a way that demanded careful retelling. See, the Jews, they were serious about the words of a prophet. And if they didn't believe Christ was the Messiah, they at least believed he was a prophet, at least the believing Jews did. Some of the followers, of course, the immediate disciples of Christ, also considered Jesus to be God. They worshiped him, so certainly they would have had a keen ear to every word that he spoke. Something ever stick out to you in scripture from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and you can still just remember exactly what it says to this day? It spoke to you because of the authority that it had in your life. This is how all the apostles considered the words of Christ. They would remember it. Secondly, 90% of Jesus' teachings possess poetic elements, which would allow for easy memorization. I would argue that poetic elements are still the primary use for easy memorization today. That's how we learn the ABCs. We sing a song with it. Therefore, looking at Jesus' teachings, if you look at them, they heavily involve stories, illustrations, pictures that are easy to remember for the apostles to write down. Not to mention that the most universal method of education in antiquity was memorizing things rotely. They would just memorize them, which would allow for one to remember vast quantities of materials. We've gotten so lazy today with Google search. You don't know what's going on, what do you do? Google it up. They didn't have that kind of uh, convenience back then, of course. A Jewish boy at the bar mitzvah, he's only 13 years old, had to verbalize the entire Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, word for word, to pass the bar mitzvah. Those 13-year-olds would put, pretty sure most, if not all of us, to shame today in memorizing scripture. Of course, disciples and rabbis would personally keep notes. And then one key feature of world tradition is there's a lack of teachings ascribed to Jesus about later church controversies, which show that the disciples did not freely invent the teachings of Jesus. They just wrote down exactly what he taught. So we've seen this fly past the internal test very well. Oral tradition would preserve many of the teachings of the apostles and Christ. Now one that's very powerful in the internal test is what's known as counterproductive features, something that even detectives still use today. These are details that someone would not put in their testimony if it simply were just not true. And there are many counterproductive features in the Word of God, especially the New Testament, that show it is, in fact, telling the truth. One of them is the testimony of women. In the time and place and culture of the New Testament, women were not allowed to bear witness in a courtroom. Their testimony was not counted. You had to be a man. There was not the authority given, not the freedom that we have today. They were not considered a credible witness to Real events. So if you were a lady walking by an alleyway and you saw a man get stabbed in the back, there's nothing that you could do in testifying against that man who murdered the other individual. Yet contrary to culture and mindset, 
The New Testament records women giving testimony to significant events. To note one important one, it was women who first witnessed the resurrected Christ. That's what's recorded in the gospel. If the gospels were being made up, the writers would have never included this detail. They would have lost credibility by including it, but because the authors of the New Testament were only concerned with telling the truth, they left these details in because it was in fact how it actually happened. Another counterproductive feature that shows it's telling the truth is the fearful disciples. Not only is Christ portrayed in humiliating detail as he goes to the cross, but the disciples who are trying to be good disciples of Christ, they flee and they run away even after promising that they would never leave his side. Even Peter who said he would die with Christ. What an embarrassment to run away fearfully and leave their Messiah to face death on his own. This detail alone is one of the strongest counterproductive features in the gospel records. Surely if the records were intended to be embellished, for instance, Peter or John, why not say you stuck by his side the whole time? Why not say you were there and you didn't just chop off the the ear of the servant of the high priest, but you took his head also, you know, go all the way. You don't see any of that. You see weakness and inconsistency in the disciples, unmanliness even. Or how about the death of the Messiah itself? There's really no such thing as the story of the gospel when you're making up a Messiah. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is emphasized in every gospel record and in New Testament doctrine. This is too creative. This is too novel to just be made up. If the writers of the New Testament were interested in creating Jesus and fabricating him in the way that would be embraced by the culture, they would have avoided the fine details of his humiliating death and certainly perhaps wouldn't have even had him die in the first place. So pretty strong and powerful counterproductive features. Let's talk about one that's unique to the Bible, prophetic fulfillment. The Bible is the only document in history that passes the prophetic. And this is unique to the Bible, of course. There's a lot of spiritual books that claim to have prophecy and foretelling of events, but they never really quite get to, uh, get to the point that they're believable. There's over 300 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament. Just to name a few that you're, I'm sure, aware of, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, that he would be of the lineage of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey in a specific way, for a specific reason, that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be pierced in his death. He'd be bruised and wounded unto death. That he would even rise again from the dead. Now, some would argue that Jesus forced some of these prophecies to be fulfilled. And I would rebuttal that and say, how could Jesus control where he was born or how he was a relative of David or how he could be betrayed, beaten, and executed? Unless, of course, he was the Messiah himself. It's logically absurd to think that Jesus could just be at the right place at the right time. There is an individual named Peter Stoner. It's not my brother, who's Peter Stone. Uh, in his classical book called Science Speaks, he calculates the chance of any man fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, even down to the present time, to be one in whatever that number is, a Googleplex, 10 to the 17th power. He says, how can anyone think that Jesus just happened to be in the right place at the right time? Clearly, we can't consider coincidence. It's astronomically impossible for Jesus to have just so happened fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He did them intentionally because they were intentionally about him. Well, one final thing that we want to look at in the internal test, we're going to have to cruise here, is... Scholars and historians are looking for mythical features or non-mythical features. They want to make sure that what is being written down hasn't already been written somewhere else or referenced in, in mythology. And historians, scholars have confirmed five proofs that the New Testament is not mythological by nature. For instance, that the surrounding persons, places, and events of those narrated in the New Testament are, not, are, are, excuse me, are all historical. Right? We, we know, for instance, that Peter Pan is not real, not only because we never met the guy, but because the Neverlands have never been found. It's not a real historical location. But you can go to Israel today. You can go to the Sea of Galilee. You can go to the many archaeological locations where these events happened. There's not a single person, place, or event 
in the New Testament that can be shown to be fictional. If anything, they're being proven to be real people in history. Also, there's no time or way for legend or myth to develop while these eyewitnesses were still alive to refute the New Testament writings. All of the accounts of the New Testament were written while the eyewitnesses were still alive. They didn't wait a couple hundred years and then make these things up later. This stuff was written within the generation of those who saw the risen Christ, who saw Jesus crucified, who were there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles. The New Testament also records no signs or red flags of myths. There's no Greek myth that speaks of a literal incarnation of a monotheistic God into human form. Like John 1.1 says, there's no literal virgin birth in Greek mythology. There's no death and physical resurrection in Greek mythology. The Greeks believed in reincarnation, not in resurrection. And they believed in polytheism, not monotheism. The New Testament writers were not interested in writing myths. Otherwise, they would have held to Greek mythical tones. Now, also, it's important to note that myths always follow literal history. History never follows myths. And there is no Greek myth that precedes the death and resurrection of Jesus that talks about it in that way. If there's any influence of mythology, the New Testament has the starting point. And both historians and professional myth writers have confirmed that the New Testament does not hold any mythological tones. A. N. Sherwin-White says, the confirmation of historicity for the New Testament is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Okay. So we've seen the bibliographical test pass, hard pass, and the internal test. The New Testament passes that very, very well. We now arrive to the final test. If you'll bear with me, we'll fly through this external test, which is the third and final one, which looks at evidence supporting the claims of the document outside of the document itself, like non-biased witnesses or archaeological data that's involved. And There's two that we're going to look at this morning real briefly. Number one, non-Christian witnesses, which offer data on the New Testament. And of course, archaeology, which is one of the strongest uh, uh, external tests for the New Testament. Let's start with a man named Tacitus. We ran into Tacitus earlier when when we were looking at his uh, documentation. He's the Roman historian who lived through the reigns of over half a dozen Roman emperors best known for his works, the Annals of Rome, and we get a great deal of history about Christianity from his perspective, and his perspective completely agrees with what the New Testament records, showing that the New Testament was interested in recording historical fact. Listen to what Tacitus says in his Annals of Rome concerning Nero and the persecution that the Christians faced. He says, to suppress this rumor, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius, uh, Tiberius reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. But in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition had broken out afresh, not only in Judea where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. All degraded and shameful practices collect and flourish in Rome. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then, on their information, large numbers of others were condemned. Their deaths were made, I don't know what that word is, farcical dressed in wild animal skins. They were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified and made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. Nero provided his gardens for the spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus at which he mingled with the crowd or stood in a chariot, dressed as a charioteer. Despite their guilt as Christians and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied, for it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality rather than to the national interest. This is Tacitus writing about Christians in the first century. And it aligns with the accounts that we read in the New Testament, that Christians were named for their founder, Christ, as Tacitus wrote and as the book of Acts declares in Acts chapter 11 and 26, that Christ was sentenced to death under Pontius Pilate, as Luke 23 says, that Christ's death was during Tiberius' reign, Luke chapter 3, that superstition broke out in Judea, Acts chapter 2, 
that his followers carried his doctrine to Rome, Acts chapter 28, and that Christians were persecuted, being nailed to crosses, John chapter 15. Sue Antonius also writes of events that take place in the New Testament as well. He was another Roman historian around 70 AD that makes reference to Jesus and to Christians in his writings. He says, because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Christ, Claudius expelled them from the city, that is the city of Rome. Well, guess what? Paul the Apostle and Luke, who records in Acts chapter 18, says the same thing. Paul found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So Suetonius is right on, as well as the New Testament, an external witness to the events of the New Testament. Suetonius also makes reference to the persecutions of Nero, as Tacitus did. There's no contradiction in any of his history, as with the New Testament. Perhaps one you've heard of the most is Josephus. Perhaps the most important secular testimony to the events of the New Testament. Listen to what he says. There was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, just like John's gospel says, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jew and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. (laughs) Pretty incredible testimony coming from somebody who has no interest in the doctrine of the New Testament. Now, there's other men like Thallus, who wrote around 52 AD that spoke of the crucifixion of Christ. Pliny the Younger, who wrote around 111 AD, an official of the Roman province who writes of the Emperor Trajan and the rapid uh, rapid increase of Christianity in the area, as we read about in 1 Peter chapter 1. Pliny also mentions the fact that Christians did not venerate images or give worship to the emperors or their gods because they were monotheists who believed in Jesus as the Christ and that they were actually jeopardizing local businesses, just like we read about in the book of Acts, because people were converting to Christ and quit buying artifacts and animals for sacrifices to pagan gods. Let's close up our presentation by looking at the most powerful external witness to the New Testament, which is archaeology. And I want to just give you a few facts and just a few samples of what we have for the New Testament. There are 60 historical details of the Gospel of John that have been established alone. There's over 80 historical items confirmed from the book of Acts. And by and large, 25,000 plus finds have been discovered by archaeologists that uh, correlate with the Word of God. And there's not a single archaeological find to this date that contradicts the biblical narrative. That's a significant testimony to the Word of God. Here's a sample We've discovered what's known as the pavement in John chapter 19, verse 13. This is the court where Jesus was tried. He was left buried under the rebuilt city and was recently discovered. You can go to the pool of Bethesda where Jesus heals a lame man. This is a pretty cool one, the Yohannan crucifixion. It shows the accuracy of the biblical text and how crucifixion occurred. This was uncovered in 1968. And this is uh, dated back to 70 AD. I wish I had a laser pointer, but you can see there the, the nail going through the foot. And the other one, it's kind of hard to tell what it is, but it's a hand, nail going through the hand. The Pilate inscription. This was discovered in 1961. If you're a Greek reader, right there in the middle, you can kind of see the Greek word Pilate. Uh, up until this time, there was skepticism that Pontius Pilate was even a real man. All we had was some documentation, but there was no archaeological evidence So critics were all over this until, of course, this was discovered and uh, has Pilate's name and position on this stone. Another critic silencer was the Gallio inscription. Up until uh, just a couple decades ago, uh, critics were saying there's no such man as Gallio, and then they found this. And right in the middle there is Gallio being the proconsul in office 
which is mentioned in Acts chapter 18. The Sergius Paulus inscription, you can see it very clearly there as we read about Acts chapter 13. You can go to the temple of Diana the goddess today in Ephesus from Acts chapter 19. Go to the pool of Siloam, discovered recently in 2005, where Jesus heals the man and tells him to go wash and receive his sight. And even ossuaries are a great testimony to the word of God in the New Testament because it shows uh, these bones buried with crosses, showing that the cross had become a religious symbol for Christians very, very early on, dated back to 50 AD. They were already cherishing the cross. Oops. Nelson Gluick, he's an archaeologist, says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever been controverted, I'm sorry, has ever controverted a biblical reference. Many of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or at exact detail historical statements in the Bible. So here we go. The New Testament tested as a historically reliable document as a whole, passes the bibliographical test, 25,000 manuscripts, 36,000 quotes, passes the internal test. There's nothing to say that it doesn't, uh, in fact, tell the truth of what it's claiming. And then, of course, every external test aligns with what the New Testament records. And this is the data that we have for the New Testament. The New Testament is, without a doubt, a historically reliable document that when we read it every single day, it's not just food for our lives, but it's objective and true in every way possible. Amen to that. If you guys have questions about this, I'll be up here after service. Uh, more than happy to share this presentation with you. Um, as I shared on Thursday night, there's a third message to this, which I won't have an opportunity to talk about, about the canon of scripture and I'm more than happy to share the notes on that as well. So thank you guys so much for your time and hanging out with me 10 extra minutes to get through this. Let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll fellowship. Lord, we do love you so much and thank you for the time that we've had this morning. We do thank you, Lord, that you have left clear evidence for your word, that you haven't asked us, Lord, to just jump into something blindly. You always leave a testimony. And in this case, it's, it's a phenomenal testimony. It's a testimony that most... Uh, Documents we'll never have, not even documents contemporarily in our day today. Lord, I pray that this information would help us to uh, not only have more confidence as we read your word, but as we share your word with other people. And Lord, we do love you, and we ask that uh, you'd go before us today. We pray that you'd come quickly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.